like the Quaker mission of believing in the divine light of each person and nobody is beyond redemption. And just from that Quaker faith and love and action and, you know, working with groups and people who believe that, um, who are working for a better future. Sometimes no matter how pie in the sky that dream feels, the fact that people are not giving up and there's still consistency in that advocacy and in dreaming for where we are all living a life in a sustainable earth. That was Penella Bay. She's a policy engagement coordinator at the American Friends Service Committee's Office of Public Policy and Advocacy. She works in Washington, D.C., coordinating with grassroots activists around the country. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. And this week, if you're just joining, we're taking a closer look at people of faith and goodwill seeking to push policy and elected leaders, including President Biden, to take action to adopt policies that would offer undocumented residents of the United States a pathway to citizenship. That is a priority for the Interfaith Immigration Coalition. It's a nonpartisan network of over 50 national faith-based organizations working to, in their words, enact fair and humane immigration reform. Penella Bay serves as the chair, and she comes to the work inspired by her faith and her experience as an immigrant. Born and raised in Nigeria, Ibe arrived in the United States as an international student. But then, three years later, something happened that gave her a path to becoming a citizen. Due to some stroke of events, my mom was able to apply for permanent residency. And because I was below 21, as is the law, I was able to get a permanent resident status through that as well. I'm fortunate that my status um, has been, quote unquote, documented at all stages and not as precarious as other people's have been. It's that awareness of the privilege of being documented that motivates Ibe's advocacy. It's also what drew her to the American Friends Service Committee, or AFSC. It's a Quaker organization that runs programs around the world. From direct service to policy advocacy on a host of issues, including immigration. And it was that history that attracted Penel Ibe. I was really encouraged by by the history. AFSC is almost 107 years. And as I was going through the history, um, there was oftentimes, you know, reading and finding that AFSC was in, in many cases, right, was on the right side of history or took on challenges that no one else would or, you know, stood by communities that no one else would. We're thinking about, you know, when Japanese um, nationals were in internment camps. I've had people email me and say, you know, my father or someone was actually born into a blanket that AFSC provided. I'm curious um, because you're working on immigrant advocacy rights and yeah. and you're not a citizen. How did you feel during the Trump administration? How do you feel now? You know, I not directly vulnerable, but the reality is that a green card is is not permanent in in the sense that I always joke around that the ink is never fully dry. A minor infraction of a misdemeanor or something, you know, and as a black person, knowing that these systems are set up um, to disenfranchise you in many ways, you're always very vulnerable.
in the Trump administration, they had a denaturalization task force that went after people and took back their citizens. So even as citizens, it's you're never truly protected, right? If the law can find one reason why um, and says that you're not worthy of the status that you were given. And so I, I was always aware of that if I was at a rally or at a protest or something, you know, reminding myself that these are my limitations and I would try and memorize all the like lawyers numbers um, and my rights so that I was always prepared. But it also made me even more aware of what it was like for someone who's undocumented to move around in the United States. Um, so in those moments, I felt the vulnerability that I could possibly be in, but was even more aware of the privilege that I operated in in that vulnerability. Mm. I'm always intrigued and curious how we navigate those and find ways to express our beliefs, use our voice, while also mindful of the power that we have and the power we don't have if something happens. How do you see this holiday, July 4th, as it relates to the work that you do? It's, I think it's interesting coming that July 4th is so close to Juneteenth um, and the talk of independence. Um, and so just reflecting on that as someone who's not American and seeing what independence means to the different communities here, um, what it means to immigrants as well. For some, it's a celebration of the rights that they, you know, no matter how little that they didn't have back home, which is why they left. And for some, they're reminded of what they do not have access to and what rights are often used against them. And yeah, it's just, it's, I still look at it and I'm like, a lot of people are not independent in a lot of systems in the U.S. as, as I learn and as I listen to stories um, in communities. And so July 4th has mixed feelings um, and just the history, right, of the country in general. Um, to some, this is a celebration. To many, it isn't. Um, and I think the, the, the beauty of America is that those two things exist um, and they should be allowed to exist that if one does not feel free, if one does not feel the need to celebrate this because it really hasn't meant the same for them as others, they should be allowed to express that because that is what a democracy is. Um, so just reflecting on that and seeing how different people engage with it um, is really interesting um, because I'm coming from a country where it sort of means the same as well. You know, posted uh, uh, an independence for Nigeria. I'm from the Igbo tribe and we experienced a genocide by, by um, the northern tribe in Nigeria. Um, and so we all have to stand under the same flag, but doesn't mean the same for everyone in Nigeria anymore because under that flag, people were killed. Right. Um, so like independence and sort of these dates um, really are just very interesting social constructs that that bring up imp very important conversations that should not be hidden um, and should be had and should be addressed. So that's how I, I reflect on this. So it's more than a holiday, which sometimes, you know, you just need a holiday. But with this work, you, you need to look you need to read in between the lines. What is the Citizenship for All campaign that you're working on right now? So Citizenship for All um, really is just um, a demand that we've put forward to Congress to say, create a pathway to citizenship for the almost, if not more than 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. And 11 million undocumented immigrants, um, they range in, quote unquote, the status that they have 
under like USCIS, which is like the immigration services space. So we've seen multiple immigration policies within the United States that prioritizes detention and deportation and separating families and tearing apart communities um, is prevalent. And we continue to see those systems um, sort of being ballooned. Their budgets are increasing. Their scope is increasing. And what we know is that the only way individuals can really be protected from those systems at the moment is getting permanent status, permanent protection, which is um you know, legal permanent residency or a green card, like some folks will call it, which then puts individuals on a pathway to citizenship. So when we say citizenship for all, we're asking for permanent protections for everyone who needs it so that they're not subjected to systems of detention and deportation. And this campaign is not, it's not today. It's been decades long of advocacy that people have been working on. Um, And what we found is that every year or every Congress, when we hear immigration reform of some sort, what we see is an increase in funding for detention and deportation and, you know, creation of policies that expand detention and deportation of immigrants. But we never see protections, permanent protections. Um, And so that is really what we're asking for. Like, we do not want protections at the expense of other community members being subjected to inhumane systems. When we see conversations around immigration, the narrative is really to detain people. So to put people in carceral facilities, if they're asylum seekers, if they're individuals that have been here, um, you know, doesn't matter how long, um, without sort of a status or documentation, as you would say, we've seen that that is where policy narrative has been shifting towards. And we want to push it back to say, instead of enforcement um, in the form of detaining people, mass detention, and then having people sort of be in detention centers and then seek out an immigration pathway, that we should create a pathway to citizenship that is clearer, that is more accessible to all these individuals, um, that is timely. And so that people who've lived here for decades, for some and others who are seeking an avenue to regularize their status, have that access. And we haven't had any policy like that in decades, right? Policies that put people on a pathway to citizenship at a mass level, as a mass scale. We haven't had that, but we have had policies that have created an over-reliance on, on using detention and deportation as a way to regulate immigration. How is the Interfaith Immigration Coalition responding to the posture and the approach that the Biden-Harris administration is taking? We are encouraging the Biden administration to welcome with dignity. That is um, that is a campaign, in fact, that does exist and the AFSC is part of and members in the ISC contribute to that effort as well. Um, we know why people migrate. Right. We know, um, first of all, that migration is a human right. Seeking asylum is a human right. And we want the United States to recognize that. And so to treat individuals who are coming to the U.S. in that form as people who are exercising their human rights and welcome them with dignity and not with systems that criminalize them, that incarcerate them, systems that already compound the the trauma that they have already experienced fleeing whatever they fled um, and making the journey up to the United States, right? And so we're saying welcome with dignity, provide resources so that individuals who need access to legal services um, to state a claim for asylum or whatever else it may be, have that avenue to them. Like I said, people will migrate um, and it's only going to get worse. Um, we hear it this past week in the U.S. We saw terrible numbers um, in, in the heat, right, that was around. And this is happening around the world and people cannot survive in those conditions. There is long term effect from that. And so messaging that we hear from any administration saying people should not come 
um, like I said, um, does not deter someone from fleeing what they can no longer exist within. So we're saying welcome with dignity. We're saying that um, faith-based groups like AFSC and other partners are ready and willing and able to work to make sure that we do, we process people in a humane way. We center their dignity. We understand that they are seeking a better path. We understand that they're exercising their human rights. Um, and that we should approach them with that kind of a welcome, a humane welcome. We've, you know, we've talked about this for decades now. It doesn't matter the administration. Our messaging remains the same. And we bring this message forward because we know we're not just in the U.S., but we're in the region as well, in Mexico, in Guatemala. And we see what people are fleeing. And so we know why we need to welcome with dignity and with humane policies. What has been the reaction to the Citizenship for All campaign that is underway right now? What's been the reaction by lawmakers and policymakers in the Biden-Harris administration as well as in the the congressional offices? It has been promising, I I would say. Um, I think post the Trump administration and when we saw how a lot of communities became more vulnerable and um, we saw like the fact that with each administration, um, a lot of community members are vulnerable to their whims and their and their their values. And so, if they value immigration versus if they don't value immigration, and we also saw that that kind of limbo is not a way for people to live, right? And then we saw the pandemic. We saw the fact that a lot of essential workers during the pandemic um, were immigrants who were in the farms, who were in the grocery stores, who were cleaning offices, who were nurses, who were doctors, you know, essentially providing for the communities, their communities during the pandemic. And so with that kind of with that kind of realization and just endless consistent advocacy from individuals who are directly impacted and allies like ourselves, We've seen a shift in in some sense um, in Congress uh, towards uh, our demands for a pathway to citizenship. In fact, from the Biden administration, I think we saw a signal of of support and willingness to engage when the Biden administration um, introduced legislation through through Congress, the U.S. Citizenship Act, sort of put in for the first time a really comprehensive um, bill that address the fact that we have not given people an opportunity to to seek a pathway to to permanent residency and then citizenship. And so we see a lot of messages from Congress. We have a lot of champions and allies who are in support. Um, Bills like the Dream and Promise Act in the Congress that um, puts dreamers, as they're colloquially called, or DACA recipients on a pathway to citizenship alongside TPS holders people who have temporary protected status and, you know, have to be in the United States because they cannot return to their country or where they initially called home, Um, putting them on a pathway to citizenship because many of them have been here decades, have U.S. citizenship children, have lived lives here, have contributed to communities here. We saw legislation putting them on a pathway to citizenship pass the House. You bring up separation from loved ones and specifically the family separation policies and the consequences of detention. It's something that has actually animated a lot of conversation in faith communities, not necessarily the policies, but the the impact, the direct human impact on families, on children and the trauma. And that's actually inspired a lot of activism from folks that were not active before on this issue. And I'm I'm thinking specifically about the family separation policy for unaccompanied children who were put into detention centers and for children who arrived with, you know, adults and who were separated. It actually mobilized 
a lot of unusual suspects, meaning people who were not Mm -hmm. advocating on immigration. Do you continue to see those voices staying engaged in this call for policy change now that there is a new administration? As an organizer, are you seeing a drop off or has that energy sustained? I think it's two pieces. Um, The energy has been sustained by individuals who were engaged. Um, The reality is that the family separation policy has been addressed, kind of, and continues to be addressed by the Biden administration. And so for that particular advocacy, it's not as needed. um, While it's still needed to accountability and to make sure like everything is, you know, like there is um, sort of healing and there's processes for people to reunite. We're seeing family separation in other ways. And People who are engaging are engaging. I think we also need to acknowledge the fact that we, we're in a pandemic. And so people engaged as they could, but there was limited engagement just because of capacity, availability, um, and just mental capacity. Honestly, everybody was burnt out um, and just stressed with so much else that was going on. When we spoke earlier, you mentioned that there are lots of different initiatives, lots of different campaigns underway. And detention is one that definitely mobilizes people. Can you describe a little bit of what you've seen happen and the campaign that is behind some of those efforts, specifically in New Jersey? Sure. Um, so in New Jersey, um, at least AFSC's program has been providing legal representation to immigrant detainees since the Elizabeth Detention Center reopened in 1997. The reality is that while detention happens at the state level, there's a lot of of investment and over-reliance in detention at the federal level that causes these systems to continue. Um, For example, in the early 20, like 2010 thereabout, there was a campaign that we led um, to end the detention quotas because Congress was funding and had a detention quota. That is what ICE, um, the Immigration Customs and Enforcement, the number of people they had to detain on an average daily basis. And so that essentially encouraged ICE to keep their detention numbers at that level. We see um, the funding, right? You know, when they put funding forward, they're putting funding forward for ICE to detain. I think in the, in the Trump administration, it was up to 50,000 people a day. Um, and so we, we keep seeing that like sort of encouragement for ICE to detain people. But then we know what detention centers look like um, because every day um, we're getting phone calls from people in detention centers about the conditions there. Um, and they're abysmal. And so particularly um, 2020 happens, COVID-19, and we know how unsafe casserole facilities are just generally, um, but how it was more of a hotbed for COVID-19. And so you know, alongside other activists, we had to find ways to release people from those from the detention centers. So in New Jersey, for example, AFSC filed a lawsuit against the Elizabeth Detention Center calling for the immediate release of all detained individuals due to the facility's lack of unsanitary and insufficient conditions during the pandemic. And we won releases of a lot of people. But we had to move further because the pandemic, you know, essentially is, quote unquote, over um, in terms of the there's vaccinations out there now. And so that could be a reason why they do not release people. We've been working on introducing bills, for example, that will ban any new immigration detention centers in the state, as well as prohibit the renewal or extension of existing ICE detention contracts. Um, and so that was a bill that actually passed both the New Jersey House, so the state House and the state Senate, and is on its way to the governor's desk. What is your response to those who say by passing citizenship for all, we will not discourage but encourage more migration to the United States? 
My response to that is that the policies that we have in place now that are quote unquote, and most administrations will use deterrence, do not stop migration. People migrate because of multiple root causes and push factors that are independent of the immigration policies here in the United States. Um, people are fleeing, you know, very terrible regimes. People are fleeing harm in their countries. People are fleeing terrible economic spaces. Um, climate change is happening as well. And so people will migrate. Um, and even during the Trump administration, right, when immigration policies was not the most favorable, people were still migrating because it was less about where they were going and more about what they were fleeing. And so a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented people who call America home and who have lived here, it is not a, how would I put it? It's independent of that in some ways, because people will still migrate if the conditions where they are are no longer conducive for their existence in that space. Now, you've been at the American Friends Service Committee for four years now, and you mentioned earlier burnout among activists. Is that something that you're concerned with for yourself? In social justice work and in NGO work, that is, you know, there's high burnout levels, there's lack of resource in a lot of times because of the issues people focus on. I have colleagues who've been in this work for 20 years. I have colleagues who've retired twice and still somehow find their way back in just because there's so much work that needs to be done and they feel comfortable doing that work through this organization. And so I'm inspired by my colleagues, right? I'm inspired by the Black immigrant leaders who, when I came into this work, really helped me understand what it meant to advocate for Black immigrants as a Black immigrant myself. Um, and my faith as well. I'm a person of faith and it's, it's, it's a blessing to be able to, to use my faith values um, to push for social justice. One of my favorite Bible verses talks about, you know, letting your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And I think for me, this is the good work that I want. Anella Bay is the Policy Engagement Coordinator at the American Friends Service Committee's Office of Public Policy and Advocacy in Washington, D.C. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any portion or want to take another listen, head over to interfaithradio.org where you can stream or download this episode in its entirety. And while you are there, you can subscribe to the newsletter and search the archives. If you want to listen on the go, you can subscribe to the podcast. Just search Interfaith Voices wherever you catch your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It helps others find us. A special thanks this week to the KALW Spiritual Edge team for the special Nuns and Ice, which includes executive producer Judy Silber, producer Helen Shin, and sound engineer Tarek Foda. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. A shout out to our founder, Sister Maureen Fiedler, MC Yogi for our theme music, and the Blue Dot Sessions for additional sound. And to all of our generous supporters who make this show possible. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.